CD7. Ludmilla risked removing her hands from her ears. Oh, it's horrible. What is it, Mr. Poons? Windle tried to pull the remains of his hat over his ears. Don't know, he said. It could be music, if you'd never heard music before. There weren't notes. There were strung-together noises that might have been intended to be notes, put together as one might draw a map of a country that one had never seen. It's coming from outside the city, said Lamilla, where all the people are going. They can't like it, can they? I can't imagine why they should, said Windle. It's just that you remember the trouble with the rats last year, that man who said he had a pipe that played music only rats could hear. Yes, but that wasn't really true. It was all a fraud. It was just the amazing Morris and his educated rodents. But supposing it could have been true? Windle shook his head. Music to attract humans? Is that what you're getting at? But that can't be true. It, it's not attracting us. Quite the reverse, I assure you. Yes, but you're not human, exactly, said Ludmilla. And, she stopped and went red in the face, Windle patted her on the shoulder. Good point, good point, was all he could think of to say. You know, don't you, she said, without looking up. Yes, I don't think it's anything to be ashamed of, if, if that's any help. Mother said it would be dreadful if anyone ever found out. That probably depends on who it is, said Windle, glancing at Lupine. Why is your dog staring at me like that, said Ludmilla. He's very intelligent, said Windle. Windle felt in his pocket, tipped out a couple of handfuls of soil, and unearthed his diary. Twenty days to the next full moon. Still, it'll be something to look forward to. The metal debris of the heap started to collapse. Trolleys whirred around it, and a large crowd of Ankh-Morpork's citizens were standing in a big circle trying to peer inside. The unmusical music filled the air. "'There's Mr. Dibbler,' said Ludmilla, as they pushed their way through the unresisting people. "'What's he selling this time?' "'I don't think he's trying to sell anything, Mr. Poons.' "'It's that bad? Then we're probably in lots of trouble.' Blue light shone out from one of the holes in the heap. Bits of broken trolley tinkled onto the ground like metal leaves. Windle bent down stiffly and picked up a pointy hat. It was battered and had been run over by a lot of trolleys, but it was still recognisable as something that by rights should be on someone's head. "'There's wizards in there,' he said. Silver light glittered off the metal. It moved like oil. Windle reached out and a fat spark jumped across and grounded itself on his fingers. "Hmm." he said. Lot of potential, too. Then he heard the cry of the vampires. Cooey, Mr. Poons! He turned. The not-far-outos were bearing down on him. We, I mean, we would have been here sooner, only... I couldn't find the blasted collar stud, muttered Arthur, looking hot and flustered. He was wearing a collapsible opera hat, which was fine on the collapsible part, but regrettably lacking in hatness, so that Arthur appeared to be looking at the world from under a concertina. Oh, hello, said Windle. There was something dreadfully fascinating about the Winking's dedication to accurate vampirism. And who is the young lady, said Doreen, beaming at Ludmilla. 
Pardon? said Windle. What? Doreen, I mean, the Countess, asked who she is, Arthur supplied wearily. I understood what I said, snapped Doreen in the more normal tones of one born and brought up in Ankh Morpork rather than some Transylvanian fastness. Honestly, if I left it to you, we'd have no standards at all. My name's Ludmilla, said Ludmilla. Charmed, said the Countess, not far out oh, graciously, extending a hand that would have been thin and pale if it had not been pink and stubby. Always nice to meet fresh blood. If ever you fancy a dog biscuit, when you're out and about, our door is always open. Ludmilla turned to Windlepoons. It's not written on my forehead, is it? she said. These are special kind of people, said Windle gently. I should think so, said Ludmilla levelly. I hardly know anyone who wears an opera cloak the whole time. You've got to have the cloak, said Count Arthur, for the wings, you see, like... He spread the cloak dramatically. There was a brief implosive noise, and a small fat bat hung in the air. It looked down, gave an angry squeak, and nosedived onto the soil. Doreen picked it up by its feet and dusted it off. It's having to sleep with the window open all night that I object to, she said vaguely. I wish they'd stop that music. I'm getting a headache. There was another whoomp. Arthur reappeared upside down and landed on his head. It's the drop, you see, said Doreen. It's like a run-up sort of thing. If he doesn't get at least one story start, he can't get up a proper airspeed. I can't get up a proper airspeed, said Arthur, struggling to his feet. Excuse me, said Windle. The music doesn't affect you? It puts my teeth on edge is what it does, said Arthur, which is not a good thing for a vampire. I probably don't have to tell you. Mr. Poons thinks it does something to people, said Ludmilla. Sets everyone's teeth on edge, said Arthur. Windle looked at the crowd. No one was taking any notice of the fresh starters. They look as though they're waiting for something, said Doreen. I mean, vating. It's scary, said Ludmilla. Nothing wrong with scary, said Doreen. Via scary. Mr Poons wants to go inside the heap, said Ludmilla. Good idea, get them to turn that damn music off, said Arthur. But you could get killed, said Ludmilla. Windle clapped his hands together and rubbed them thoughtfully. Ah, he said, that's where we're ahead of the game. He walked into the glow. He'd never seen such a bright light. It seemed to emanate from everywhere, hunting down every last shadow and eradicating it ruthlessly. It was much brighter than daylight without being anything like it. There was a blue edge to it that cut vision like a knife. You all right, Count? he said. Fine, fine, said Arthur. Lupine growled. Ludmilla pulled at a tangle of metal. There's something under this, you know. It looks like uh, marble, orange-coloured marble. She ran her hand over it. But warm. Marble shouldn't be warm, should it? It can't be marble. There can't be this much marble in the whole world. I'm world, said Doreen. We tried to get marble for the vault. She tasted the sound of the word and nodded to herself. The vault? Yes, those dwarfs should be shot. The prices they charge, it's a disgrace. I don't think uh, dwarfs built this, said Windle. He knelt down awkwardly to examine the floor. 
I shouldn't think so, the lazy little buckers. They wanted nearly seventy dollars to do our vault, didn't they, Arthur? Nearly seventy dollars. I don't think anyone built it, said Windle quietly. Cracks. There should be cracks, he thought. Edges and things, where one slab joins another. It shouldn't be all one piece, and slightly sticky. So Arthur did it himself. I did it myself. Ah, here was an edge. Well, not exactly an edge. The marble became clear like a window looking into another brightly lit space. There were things in there, indistinct and melted looking, but no way into them. The chatter of the winkings flowed over him as he crept forward. More of a voltette, really. But he got a dungeon in, even if you have to go out into the hall and shut the door properly. Gentility meant all sorts of things, Windle thought. To some people it was not being a vampire, to others it was a matched set of flying plaster bats on the wall. He ran his fingers over the clear substance. The world here was all rectangles. There were corners, and the corridor was lined on both sides with clear panels, and the non-music played all the time. It couldn't be alive, could it? Life was more rounded. What do you think, Lupine? he said. Lupine barked. Hmm, not a lot of help. Ludmilla knelt down and put her hand on Windle's shoulder. What did you mean, no one built it, she said. Windle scratched his head. I'm not sure, but I think maybe it was... Secreted. Secreted? From what? By what? They looked up. A trolley whirred out of the mouth of a side corridor and skidded away down another on the opposite side of the passage. Them? said Ludmilla. I shouldn't think so. I think they're more like servants. Like ants. Bees in a hive, maybe. What's the honey? Not sure, but it's not ripe yet. I don't think things are quite finished. No one touch anything. They walked onward. The passage opened up into a wide, bright, domed area. Stairways led up and down to different floors, and there was a fountain and a grove of potted plants that looked too healthy to be real. Isn't it nice? said Doreen. You keep thinking there should be people, said Ludmilla. Lots of people. There should at least be wizards, muttered Windlepoons. Half a dozen wizards just don't disappear. The five of them moved closer. Passages the size of the one they'd just walked down could have accommodated a couple of elephants walking abreast. Do you think it might be a good idea <clears throat> to go back outside? said Doreen. What good would that do? said Windle. Well, it'd get us out of here. Windle turned, counting. Five of the passages radiated equidistantly out of the domed area. And presumably... It's the same above and below, he said aloud. It's very clean here, Doreen said nervously. Isn't it clean, Arthur? It's very clean. What's that noise, said Ludmilla. What noise? That noise, like someone sucking something. Arthur looked around with a certain amount of interest. It's not me. It's the stairs, said Windle. Don't be silly, Mr Poons. Stairs don't suck. Windle looked down. Um, these do. They were black, like a sloping river. 
As the dark substance flowed out from under the floor, it humped itself into something resembling steps, which travelled up the slope until they disappeared under the floor again somewhere above. When the steps emerged, they made a slow, rhythmic schlup-schlup noise, like someone investigating a particularly annoying dental cavity. Do you know, said Ludmilla, that's quite possibly the most unpleasant thing I've ever seen. I've seen worse, said Windle, but it's pretty bad. Shall we go up or down? You want to stand on them? No, but the wizards aren't on this floor, and it's that or slide down the handrail. Have you looked closely at the handrail? They looked at the handrail. I think, said Doreen nervously, that down is more us. They went down in silence. Arthur fell over at the point where the travelling stairs were sucked into the floor again. "'I had this horrible feeling that it was going to drag me under,' he said apologetically, and then looked around him. "'It's big,' he concluded. "'Roomy. I could do wonders down here with some stone-effect wallpaper.' Ludmilla wandered over to the nearest wall. "'You know,' she said, "'there's more glass than I've seen before, but these clear bits look a bit like shops. Does that make sense?' A great big shop, full of shops. And not ripe yet, said Windle. Sorry? Just thinking aloud. Can you see what the merchandise is? Ludmilla shaded her eyes. It just looks like a lot of colour and glitter. Let me know if you see a wizard, someone screamed. Or hear one, for example, Windle added. Lupine bounded off down a passageway. Windle lurched swiftly after him. Someone was on their back, trying desperately to fight off a couple of trolleys. They were bigger than the ones Windle had seen before, with a golden sheen to them. Hey! he yelled. They stopped trying to gore the prone figure, and Three Point turned towards him. Oh! he said as they got up speed. The first one dodged Lupine's jaws and butted Windle full in the knees, knocking him over. As the second passed over him, he reached up wildly, grabbed randomly at the metal and pulled hard. A wheel spun off and the trolley cartwheeled into the wall. He scrambled up in time to see Arthur hanging grimly onto the handle of the other trolley as the two of them whirred around in a mad centrifugal waltz. Let go! Let go! Doreen screamed. I can't! I can't! Well, do something! There was a pop of in-rushing air. The trolley was suddenly not straining against the weight of a middle-aged wholesale fruit-and-vegetable entrepreneur, but only against a small, terrified bat. It rocketed into a marble pillar, bounced off, hit a wall, and landed on its back, wheels spinning. "'The wheels!' shouted Ludmilla. "'Pull the wheels off!' "'I'll do that,' said Windle. "'You help Reg.' "'Is that Reg down there?' said Doreen. Windle jerked his thumb towards the distant wall. The words better late than never ended in a desperate streak of paint. "'Show him a wall and a paint pot, and he doesn't know what world he's in,' said Doreen. "'He's only got a choice of two, said Windle, throwing the trolley wheels across the floor. "'Lupine, keep a lookout in case there's any more.' The wheels had been sharp, like ice skates. He was definitely feeling tattered around the legs. "'Now, how did healing go?' Reg Shoe was helped into a sitting position. "'What's happening?' he said. "'No one else was coming in, and I came down here to see where the music was coming from, and the next thing there's these wheels.' 
Count Arthur returned to his approximately human form, looked around proudly, realised that no one was paying him any attention, and sagged. They looked a lot tougher than the others, said Ludmilla, bigger and nastier and covered in sharp edges. Soldiers, said Windle, we've seen the workers, and now the soldiers. Just like ants. I had an ant farm when I was a lad, said Arthur, who had hit the floor rather heavily and was having temporary trouble with the nature of reality. Hang on, said Ludmilla, I know about ants, we have ants in the backyard. If you have workers and soldiers, then you also must have a... I know, I know, said Windle. Mind you, they called it a farm. I never saw them doing any farming. Ludmilla leaned against the wall. It'll be somewhere close, she said. I think so, said Windle. What does it look like, do you think? What you do is you get two bits of glass and some ants. I don't know. How should I know? But the wizards will be somewhere near it. I don't see why you're bothering about them, said Doreen. They buried you alive just because you were dead. Windle looked up at the sound of wheels. A dozen warrior baskets turned around the corner and pulled up in formation. They thought they were doing it for the best, said Windle. People often do. It's amazing the things that seem a good idea at the time. The new death straightened up. Oh. Ah. Um. Bill Dorr stepped back, turned round, and ran for it. It was, as he was wonderfully well-placed to know, merely putting off the inevitable. But wasn't that what living was all about? No one had ever run away from him after they were dead. Many had tried it before they were dead, often with great ingenuity. But the normal reaction of a spirit suddenly pitched from one world into the next was to hang around, hopefully. Why run, after all? It wasn't as if you knew where you were running to. The ghost of Bill Dorr knew where he was running to. Ned Simnel Smithy was locked up for the night, although this did not present a problem. Not alive and not dead, the spirit of Bill Dorr dived through the wall. The fire was a barely visible glow settling in the forge. The smithy was full of warm darkness. What it didn't contain was the ghost of a scythe. Dildor looked around desperately. Squeak! There was a small dark-robed figure sitting on a beam above him. It gestured frantically towards the corner. He saw a dark handle sticking out from the load of timber. He tried to pull at it with fingers now as substantial as a shadow. He said he would destroy it for me. The death of rats shrugged sympathetically. The new death stepped through the wall, scythe held in both hands, it advanced on Bill Dorr. There was a rustling. The grey robes were pouring into the smithy. Bill Dorr grinned in terror. The new death stopped, posing dramatically in the glow from the forge. It swung. It almost lost its balance. <laughs> You're not supposed to duck. <laughs> Bill Dorr dived through the wall again and pounded across the square, skull down, spectral feet making no noise on the cobbles. He reached the little group by the clock. On the horse! Go! What's happening? What's happening? It hasn't worked. Miss Flitworth gave him a panicky look, but put the unconscious child on Binky's back and climbed up after her. Then Bill Dorr brought his hand down hard on the horse's flank. There at least there was contact. Binky existed in all worlds. Go! He didn't look around, but darted on up the road towards the farm. A weapon. Something he could hold. The only weapon in the undead world was in the hands of the new death. As Bill Dorr ran, he was aware of a faint, 
higher-pitched clicking noise. He looked down. The death of rats was keeping pace with him. It gave him an encouraging squeak. He skidded through the farm gate and flung himself against the wall. There was the distant rumble of the storm. Apart from that, silence. He relaxed slightly and crept cautiously along the wall to the back of the farmhouse. He caught a glimpse of something metallic. Leaning against the wall, there where the men from the village had left it when they brought him back, was his scythe, not the one he'd carefully prepared, but the one he'd used for the harvest. What edge it had had been achieved only by the whetstone and the caress of the stalks, but it was a familiar shape, and he made a tentative grab at it. His hand passed right through. The further you run, the closer you get. The new death stepped unhurriedly out of the shadows. You should know that, it added. Bill Dore straightened up. We will enjoy this. Enjoy? The new death advanced. Bill Dore backed away. Yes, the taking of one death is the same as achieving the end of a billion lesser lives. Lesser lives? This is not a game. The new death hesitated. What is a game? Bill Dore felt the tiny flicker of hope. I could show you. The end of the scythe handle caught him under the chin and knocked him against the wall where he slid to the ground. We detect a trick. We do not listen. The reaper does not listen to the harvest. Bildor tried to get up. The scythe handle struck him again. We will not make the same mistakes. Bildor looked up. The new death was holding the golden timer. The top bulb was empty. Around both of them, the landscape shifted, reddened, began to take on the unreal appearance of reality seen from the other side. You're out of time, Mr. Bildor. The new death raised his cowl. There was no face there. There was not even a skull. Smoke curled formlessly between the robe and a golden crown. Bill Dore raised himself on his elbows. A crown? His voice shook with rage. I never wore a crown. You never wanted to rule. The death swung the scythe back. And then it dawned on the old death and the new death that the hissing of passing time had not in fact stopped. The new death hesitated and took out the golden glass. It shook it. Bildor looked into the empty face under the crown. There was an expression of puzzlement there, even with no features actually to wear it. The expression hung in the air all by itself. He saw the crown turn. Miss Flitworth stood with her hands held a foot apart and her eyes closed. Between her hands, in the air in front of her, hovered the faint outline of a lifetimer, its sand pouring away in a torrent. The deaths could just make out, on the glass, the spidery name Renata Flitworth. The new death's featureless expression became one of terminal puzzlement. It turned to Bill Dore. For you... But Bill Dore was already rising and unfolding like the wrath of kings. He reached behind him, growling, living on loaned time, and his hands closed around the harvest scythe. 
The crowned death saw it coming and raised his own weapon, but there was very possibly nothing in the world that would stop the worn blade as it snarled through the air, rage and vengeance, giving it an edge beyond any definition of sharpness. It passed through the metal without slowing. No crown, said Bildor, looking directly into the smoke. No crown, only the harvest. The robe folded up around his blade. There was a thin wail rising beyond the peak of hearing. A black column like the negative of lightning flashed up from the ground and disappeared into the clouds. Death waited for a moment and then gingerly gave the robe a prod with his foot. The crown, bent slightly out of shape, rolled out of it a little way before evaporating. Oh, he said dismissively, drama. He walked over to Miss Flitworth and gently pressed her hands together. The image of the lifetime had disappeared. The blue and violet fog on the edge of sight faded as solid reality flowed back. Down in the town, the clock finished striking midnight. The old woman was shivering. Death snapped his fingers in front of her eyes. Miss Flitworth? Renata? I... I didn't know what to do, and you said it wasn't difficult, and... Death walked into the barn. When he came out... He was wearing his black robe. She was still standing there. I didn't know what to do, she repeated, possibly not to him. What happened? Is it all over? Death looked around. The grey shapes were pouring into the yard. Possibly not, he said. More trolleys appeared behind the row of soldiers. They looked like the small silvery workers with the occasional pale golden gleam of a warrior. We should retreat back to the stairs, said Doreen. I think that's where they want us to go, said Windle. Then that's fine by me. Anyway, I wouldn't think those wheels could manage steps, could they? And you can't exactly fight to the death, said Ludmilla. Lupine was keeping close to her, yellow eyes fixed on the slowly advancing wheels. Chance would be a fine thing, said Windle. They reached the moving stairs. He looked up. Trolleys clustered around the top of the upward stair, but the way to the floor below looked clear. Perhaps we could find another way up, said Ludmilla, hopefully. They shuffled onto the moving stair. Behind them, the trolleys moved in to block their return. The wizards were on the floor below. They were standing so still among the potted plants and fountains that Windle passed them at first, assuming that they were some sort of statue or piece of esoteric furniture. The Arch-Chancellor had a false red nose and was holding some balloons. Beside him, the bursar was juggling coloured balls, but like a machine, his eyes staring blankly at nothing. The senior wrangler was standing a little way off wearing a pair of sandwich boards. The writing on them hadn't fully ripened yet, but Windle would have bet his afterlife that it would eventually say something like, Sail. The other wizards were clustered together like dolls, whose clockwork hadn't been wound up. Each one had a large oblong badge on his robe. The familiar, organic-looking writing was growing into a word that looked like security. Although why it was doing so was a complete mystery. The wizards certainly didn't look very secure. Windle snapped his fingers in front of the dean's pale eyes. There was no response. He's not dead, said Reg. Just resting, said Windle, switched off. Reg gave the dean a push. The wizard tottered forward and then staggered to a precarious swaying halt. Well, we'll never get them out, said Arthur. Not like that. Can't you wake them up? Like a feather under their nose, Doreen volunteered. 
I don't think that will work, said Windle. He based the statement on the fact that Red's shoe was very nearly under their noses, and anyone whose nasal equipment failed to register Mr. Shoe would certainly not react to a mere burning feather, or a heavy weight dropped from a great height if it came to that. Mr. Poons, said Ludmilla. I used to know a golem looked like him, said Red Shoe, just like him, great big chap, made out of clay. That's what your typical golem basically is. You just have to write a special holy word on him to start him up. What, like security? Could be. Windle peered at the dean. No, he said at last, no one's got that much clay. He looked around them. We ought to find out where that blasted music's coming from. Where the musicians are hidden, you mean? I don't think there are musicians. You've got to have musicians, brother, said Reg. That's why it's called music. Firstly, this isn't like any music I've ever heard, and secondly, I always thought you've got to have oil lamps or candles to make light, and there aren't any, and there's still light shining everywhere, said Windle. Mr. Poons, said Ludmilla again, prodding him. Yes? Here come some trolleys again. They were blocking all five passages leading off the central space. There's no stairs down, said Windle. Maybe it's... She's in one of the glassy bits, said Ludmilla. The shops? I don't think so. They don't look finished. Anyway, that feels wrong. Lupine growled. Spikes glistened on the leading trolleys, but they weren't rushing to attack. They must have seen what we did to the others, said Arthur. Yes, but how could they? That was upstairs, said Windle. Well, maybe they talk to each other. How can they talk? How can they think? There can't be any brains in a lot of wire, said Ludmilla. Ants and bees don't think, if it comes to that, said Windle. They're just controlled. He looked upwards. They looked upwards. It's coming from somewhere in the ceiling, he said. We've got to find it right now. There's just panels of light, said Ludmilla. Something else. Look for something it could be coming from. It's coming from everywhere. Whatever you're thinking of doing, said Doreen, picking up a potted plant and holding it like a club, I hope you do it fast. What's that round black thing up there? said Arthur. Where? There, Arthur pointed. Okay, Reg and me will help you up. Come on. Me? But I can't stand heights. I thought you could turn into a bat. Yeah, but, um, but a very nervous one. Stop complaining. Right, one foot here, now your hand here, now put your foot on Reg's shoulder. And don't go through, said Reg. I don't like this, Arthur moaned as they hoisted him up. Dorian stopped glaring at the creeping trolleys. Arthur noblius oblige. What? Is that some sort of vampire code? Reg whispered. It means something like, account's gotta do what account's gotta do, said Windle. Count? snarled Arthur, swaying dangerously. I never should have listened to that lawyer. I should have known nothing good ever comes in a long brown envelope. And I can't reach the bloody thing anyway. Can't you jump? said Windle. Can't you drop dead? Um, no. And I'm not jumping. Fly, then. Turn into a bat and fly. I can't get the air speed. You could throw him up, said Ludmilla. 
You know, like a paper dart. Below that, I'm a count. You just said you didn't want to be, said Windle mildly. On the ground, I don't want to be, but when it comes to being chucked around like a frisbee... Arthur, do what Mr. Poon says. I don't see what... Arthur! Arthur, as a bat, was surprisingly heavy. Windle held him by the ears like a misshapen bowling ball and tried to take aim. Remember, I'm an endangered species, the Count squeaked as Windle brought his arm back. It was an accurate throw. Arthur fluttered to the disc in the ceiling and gripped it in his claws. Can you move it? No. Then hang on tight and change back. No. We'll catch you. No. Arthur, screamed Doreen, prodding an advancing trolley with her makeshift club. Oh, all right. There was a momentary vision of Arthur Winkings clinging desperately to the ceiling, and then he dropped on Windle and Reg, the disc clasped to his chest. The music stopped abruptly. Pink tubing poured out of the ravaged hole above them and coiled upon Arthur, making him look like a very cheap plate of spaghetti and meatballs. The fountains seemed to operate in reverse for a moment, and then dried up. The trolleys halted. The ones at the back ran into the ones at the front, and there was a chorus of pathetic clanking noises. Tubing still poured out of the hole. Windle picked up a bit. It was an unpleasant pink and sticky. What do you think it is? said Ludmilla. I think, said Windle, that we'd better get out of here now. The floor trembled, steam gushed from the fountain. If not sooner, Windle added. There was a groan from the Arch-Chancellor. The dean slumped forward. The other wizards remained upright, but only just. They're coming out of it, said Ludmilla, but I don't think they'll manage the stairs. I don't think anyone should even think about trying to manage the stairs, said Windle. Look at them. The moving stairs weren't. The black steps glistened in the shadowless light. I see what you mean, said Ludmilla. I'd rather try and walk on quicksand. It'd probably be safer, said Windle. Maybe there's a ramp. There must be some way for the trolleys to get around. Good idea. Ludmilla eyed the trolleys. They were milling around aimlessly. I think I might even have a better one, she said, and grabbed a passing handle. The trolley fought for a moment, and then, lacking any contrary instructions, settled down docilely. The ones that can walk will walk, and the ones that can't walk will get pushed. Come on, Grandad. This was to the bursar, who was persuaded to flop across the trolley. He said, Yo, faintly, and shut his eyes again. The dean was manhandled on top of him. It is traditional, when loading wire trolleys, to put the most fragile items at the bottom. And now there, said Doreen. A couple of floor tiles buckled upwards. A heavy grey vapour started to pour out. It must be somewhere at the end of a passage, said Ludmilla. Come on. Arthur looked down at the mists coiling around his feet. I wonder how you can do that, he said. It's amazingly difficult to get stuff that does that. We tried it, you know, to make our crypt more, more cryptic. But it just smokes up the place and sets fire to the curtains. Come on, Arthur, we are going. You don't think we've done too much damage, do you? Perhaps we should leave a note? Yeah, I could write something on the wall if you like, said Reg. He picked up a struggling worker trolley by its handle and with some satisfaction smashed it against a pillar until its wheels dropped off. Windle watched the Fresh Start Club head up the nearest passage, pushing a bargain assortment of wizardry. 
Well, 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 he said, as simple as that. That's all we had to do, hardly any drama at all. He went to move forward and stopped. Pink tubes were forcing their way through the floor and were already coiled tightly around his legs. More floor tiles leapt into the air. The stairways shattered, revealing the dark, serrated, and above all, living tissue that had powered them. The walls pulsed and caved inwards, the marble cracking to reveal purple and pinkness underneath. Of course, thought a tiny calm part of Windle's mind, none of this is really real. Buildings aren't really alive, it's all just a metaphor, only at the moment metaphors are like candles in a firework factory. That being said, what sort of creature is the queen? Like a queen bee, except that she's also the hive? Like a caddis fly which builds, if I'm not mistaken, a shell out of bits of stones and things to camouflage itself? Or like a nautilus, which adds onto its shell as it gets bigger? And very much, to judge by the way the floors are ripping up, like a very angry starfish. I wonder how cities would defend themselves against this sort of thing. Creatures generally evolve some sort of defence against predators, poisons and stings and spikes and things. Here and now, that's probably me. Spiky old Windle Poons. At least I can try to see to it that the others get out all right. Let's make my presence felt. He reached down, grabbed a double handful of pulsating tubes and heaved. The Queen's screech of rage was heard all the way to the university. The storm clouds sped towards the hill. They piled up in a towering mass very fast. Lightning flashed somewhere in the core. There's too much life around, said Death. Not that I'm one to complain. Where's the child? I put her to bed. She's sleeping now, just ordinary sleep. Lightning struck on the hill like a thunderbolt. It was followed by a clanking, grinding noise somewhere in the middle distance. Death sighed. Ah, more drama. He walked around the barn so that he could command a good view of the dark fields. Miss Flitworth followed very closely on his heels, using him as a shield against whatever terrors were out there. A blue glow crackled behind a distant hedge. It was moving. What is it? It was the combination harvester. Was? What is it now? Death glanced at the clustering watchers. A poor loser. The harvester tore across the soaking fields, cloth arms whirring, levers moving inside an electric blue nimbus. The shafts for the horse waved uselessly in the air. How can it go without a horse? It had a horse yesterday. It doesn't need one. He looked around at the grey watchers. There were ranks of them now. Binky's still in the yard, come on. No. The combination harvester accelerated towards them. The ship-ship of its blades became a whine. Is it angry because you stole its tarpaulin? That's not all I stole. Death grinned at the watchers. He picked up his scythe, turned it over in his hands, and then, when he was sure their gaze was fixed upon it, let it fall to the ground. Then he folded his arms. Miss Flitworth dragged at him. What do you think you're doing? Drama. The harvester reached the gate into the yard and came through in a cloud of sawdust. Are you sure we'll be all right? Death nodded. Well, well, oh, well, that's all right, then. The harvester's wheels were a blur. Probably. And then, something in the machinery went clonk. Then, the harvester was still travelling, but in pieces. Sparks fountained up from its axles. A few spindles and arms managed to hold together, jerking madly as they spun away from the whirling, slowing confusion. 
The circle of blades tore free, smashed up through the machine, and skimmed away across the fields. There was a jangle, a clatter, and then the last isolated boing, which is the audible equivalent of the famous pair of smoking boots. And then there was silence. Death reached down calmly and picked up a complicated-looking spindle as it pinwheeled towards his feet. It had been bent into a right angle. Miss Flitworth peered around him. What happened? I think the elliptical cam has gradually slid up the beam shaft and caught on the flange rebate, with disastrous results. Death stared defiantly at the grey watchers. One by one they began to disappear. He picked up the scythe. And now I must go, he said. Miss Flitworth looked horrified. What, just like that? Yes, exactly like that. I have a lot of work to do. And I won't see you again. I mean... Oh, yes. Soon. He sought for the right words and gave up. That's a promise. Death pulled up his robe and reached into the pocket of his bill-door overall, which he was still wearing underneath. When Mr. Simnel comes to collect the bits in the morning, he will probably be looking for this, he said, and dropped something small and bevelled into her hands. What is it? A three-eighths gripply. Death walked over to his horse and then remembered something. And he owes me a farthing, too. Ridcully opened one eye. People were milling around. There were lights and excitement. Lots of people were talking at once. He seemed to be sitting in a very uncomfortable pram with some strange insects buzzing around him. He could hear the dean complaining, and there were groans that could only be coming from the bursar, and the voice of a young woman. People were being ministered to, but no one was paying him any attention. Well, if there was any ministering going on, he was damn well going to get ministered to as well. He coughed loudly. You could try, he said to the cruel world in general, forcing some brandy between my lips. An apparition appeared above him, holding a lamp over its head. It was a size 5 face in a size 13 skin. It said, Ooh, in a concerned way. Oh, Oh, it's you, said Ridcully. He tried to sit up quickly, just in case the librarian tried the kiss of life. Confused memories wobbled across his brain. He could remember a wall of clanking metal, and then pinkness, and then... music. Endless music, designed to turn the living brain to cream cheese. He turned around. There was a building behind him, surrounded by crowds of people. It was squat, and clung to the ground in a strangely animal way, as if it might be possible to lift up a wing of the building and hear the pop-pop-pop of suckers letting go. Light streamed out of it, and steam curled out of its doors. Ridcully's woken up! More faces appeared. Ridcully thought, It's not soul cake night, so they're not wearing masks. Ugh, blast. Behind them he heard the dean say, I vote we work up her petty seismic reorganiser and lob it through the door. No more problem. No, we're too close to the city walls. We just need to drop Quandam's attractive point in the right place. Or some jumpless incendiary surprise, perhaps. This was the bursar's voice. Burn it out. It's the best way. Yeah, yeah. And what do you know about military tactics? You can't even say yo properly. Ridcully gripped the sides of the trolley. Would anyone mind telling me, he said, what the, um, what the heck is going on? Ludmilla pushed her way through the members of the Fresh Start Club. 
You've got to stop the march, Chancellor, she said. They're talking about destroying the big shop. More nasty recollections settled on Ridcully's mind. Good idea, he said. But Mr Poons is still in there. Ridcully tried to focus on the glowing building. What? Dead, Windle Poons? Arthur flew back when we realised he wasn't with us, and he said Windle was fighting something that had come out of the walls. We saw lots of trolleys, but they weren't bothered about us. He let us get out. What? Dead Windle Poons? You can't magic the place to bits with one of your wizards in there. What? Dead Windle Poons? Yes. But he's dead, said Ridcully. Isn't he? He said he was. Ha! said someone who had much less skin than Ridcully would have liked him to have. That's typical. That's naked vitalism, that is. I bet they'd rescue someone in there if they happened to be alive. But he... he wasn't too keen on... Um, he... Ridcully hazarded. A lot of this was beyond him, but to people like Ridcully this didn't matter for very long. Ridcully was simple-minded. This doesn't mean stupid, it just meant that he could only think properly about things if he cut away all the complicated bits around the edges. He concentrated on the single main fact. Someone who was technically a wizard was in trouble. He could relate to that. It struck a chord. The whole dead-or-alive business could wait. There was another minor point that nagged at him, though. Arthur? Flew? Hello? Ridcully turned his head. He blinked slowly. Nice, um, nice teeth you've got there, he said. Thank you, said Arthur Winkings. All your own, are they? Oh, yes. Amazing. Of course, I expect you mm, brush regularly. Yes. Hygienic. That's the important thing. So what are you gonna do, said Ludmilla. Well, we'll just go mm, fetch him out, said Ridcully. What was it about the girl? He felt a strange urge to pat her on the head. We'll get some magic and, and get him out. Yes, Dean. Yo, we're just going to go in there to get Windle out. Yo. What? said the senior wrangler. You must be out of your mind. Ridcully tried to look as dignified as possible, given his situation. Remember that I am your arch-chancellor, he snapped. Then you must be out of your mind, Arch-Chancellor, said the senior wrangler. He lowered his voice. Anyway, he's an undead. I don't see how you can save undeads. It's a sort of contradiction in terms. A dichotomy, said the bursar helpfully. Oh, I, I don't think surgery is involved. Anyway, didn't we bury him, said the lecturer in recent runes. And now we, we dig him up again, said the Arch-Chancellor. It's probably a miracle of existence. Like pickles, said the bursar happily. Even the fresh starters went blank. They do that in parts of her wonderland, said the bursar. They make these big, big jars of special pickles and then they bury them in the ground for months to ferment and then they get this lovely, piquant... Tell me, Ludmilla whispered to Ridcully, is this how wizards usually behave? The senior wrangler is an amazingly fine example, said Ridcully, got the same urgent grasp of reality as a cardboard cutout. Proud to have him on the team. He rubbed his hands together. OK, lads. Volunteers? Yo, hut, 
said the dean, who was in an entirely different world now. I would be remiss in my duty if I failed to help a brother, said Red Shoe. Ook. You? We can't take you, said the dean, glaring at the librarian. You don't know a thing about guerrilla warfare. Ook said the librarian, and made a surprisingly comprehensive gesture to indicate that, on the other hand, what he didn't know about orangutan warfare could be written on the very small, pounded-up remains of, for example, the dean. Four of us should be enough,' said the Arch-Chancellor. "'I've never even heard him say yo,' muttered the dean. He removed his hat, something a wizard doesn't ordinarily do unless he's about to pull something out of it, and handed it to the bursar. Then he tore a thin strip off the bottom of his robe and held it dramatically in both hands and tied it around his forehead. "'It's part of the ethos,' he said, in answer to their penetratingly unspoken question. "'That's what the warriors on the counterweight continent do before they go into battle. And you have to shout.' He tried to remember some far-off reading. "'Er, uh, bonsai. Yes, bonsai.' "'I thought that meant chopping bits off trees to make them small.' said the senior wrangler. The dean hesitated. He wasn't too sure himself if it came to it, but a good wizard never let uncertainty stand in the way. No, it's definitely got to be bonsai, he said. He considered it some more and then brightened up, on account of it all being part of bushido, like small trees, bushido. Yeah, makes sense when you think about it. But you can't shout bonsai here, said the lecturer in recent runes. We've got a totally different cultural background. It'll be useless. No one will know what you mean. I'll work on it, said the dean. He noticed Ludmilla standing with her mouth open. This is wizard talk, he said. It is, isn't it, said Ludmilla. I never would have guessed. The arch-chancellor had got out of the trolley and was wheeling it experimentally back and forth. It usually took quite a long time for a fresh idea to fully lodge in Ridcully's mind, but he felt instinctively that there were all sorts of uses for a wire basket on four wheels. "'Are we going, or are we standing around all night bandaging our heads?' he said. "'Yo!' snapped the dean. "'Yo?' said Red Shoe. "'Ook!' "'Was that a yo?' said the dean suspiciously. Ook. Well, all right then. Death sat on a mountain top. It wasn't particularly high, or bare, or sinister. No witches held naked sabbats on it. Discworld witches, on the whole, didn't hold with taking off any more clothes than was absolutely necessary for the business in hand. No spectres haunted it. No naked little men sat on the summit dispensing wisdom, because the first thing the truly wise man works out is that sitting around on a mountain top gives you not only hemorrhoids, but frostbitten hemorrhoids. Occasionally people would climb the mountain and add a stone or two to the cairn at the top, if only to prove that there is nothing really damn stupid that humans won't do. Death sat on the cairn and ran a stone down the blade of his scythe in long, deliberate strokes. There was a movement of air. Three grey servants popped into existence. One said, You think you have won. One said, You think you have triumphed. Death turned the stone in his hand to get a fresh surface and brought it slowly down the length of the blade. One said, We will inform Azrael. One said, You are only, after all, a little death. 
Death held the blade up to the moonlight, twisting it this way and that, noting the play of light on the tiny flecks of metal on its edge. Then he stood up in one quick movement. The servants backed away hurriedly. He reached out with the speed of a snake and grasped a robe, pulling its empty hood level with his eye sockets. Do you know why the prisoner in the tower watches the flight of birds? he said. It said, Take your hands off me. Oops. Blue flame flared for a moment. Death lowered his hand and looked around at the other two. One said, You haven't heard the last of this. They vanished. Death brushed a speck of ash off his robe and then planted his feet squarely on the mountaintop. He raised the scythe over his head in both hands and summoned all the lesser deaths that had risen in his absence. After a while, they streamed up the mountain in a faint black wave. They flowed together like dark mercury. It went on for a long time and then stopped. Death lowered the scythe and examined himself. Yes, all there. Once again, he was the death, containing all the deaths of the world. Except for... For a moment, he hesitated. There was one tiny area of emptiness somewhere, some fragment of his soul, something unaccounted for. He couldn't be quite certain what it was. He shrugged. Doubtless he'd find out. In the meantime, there was a lot of work to be done. He rode away. Far off in his den under the barn, the death of rats relaxed his determined grip on a beam. Windlepoons brought both feet down heavily on a tentacle snaking out from under the tiles and lurched off through the steam. A slab of marble smashed down, showering him with fragments, then he kicked the wall savagely. There was very probably no way out now, he realised, and even if there was, he couldn't find it. Anyway, he was already inside the thing. It was shaking its own walls down in an effort to get at him. At least he could give it a really bad case of indigestion. He headed towards an orifice that had once been the entrance to a wide passage and dived awkwardly through it just before it snapped shut. Silver fire crackled over the walls. There was so much life here it couldn't be contained. There were a few trolleys still here, skittering madly across the shaking floor, as lost as Windle. He set off along another likely-looking corridor, although most corridors he'd been down in the last 130 years hadn't pulsated and dripped so much. Another tentacle thrust through the wall and tripped him up. Of course, it couldn't kill him, but it could make him bodiless. Like old one-man bucket. A fate worse than death, probably. He pulled himself up. The ceiling bounced down on him, flattening him against the floor. He counted under his breath and scampered forward. Steam washed over him. He slipped again and thrust out his hands. He could feel himself losing control. There were too many things to operate, never mind the spleen. Just keeping the heart and lungs going was taking too much effort. Topiary! What the heck do you mean? Topiary! Get it? Yo! Wook! Windle looked up through foggy eyes. Ah, obviously he was losing control of his brain too. A trolley came sideways out of the steam with shadowy figures clinging onto its sides. One hairy arm, and one arm that was barely an arm anymore, reached down, picked him up bodily, and dumped him into the basket. Four tiny wheels skidded on the floor. The trolley bounced off the wall, and then it righted itself and rattled away. Windle was only vaguely aware of voices. Off you go, Dean. I know you've been looking forward to it. That was the Arch-Chancellor. Yo! You'll kill it, totally. I don't think we want it ending up at the Fresh Star Club. I don't think it's a joiner. That was Red Shoe. 
Ooh, that was the librarian. Don't you worry, Wendell, the dean is going to do something uh, military, apparently, said Ridcully. Yo, hut! Oh, good grief! Wendell saw the dean's hand float past with something glittering in it. What are you going to use? said Ridcully as the trolley rocketed through the steam. The seismic reorganiser, the attractive point, or the incendiary surprise? Yo, said the dean with satisfaction. What, all three at once? Yo! That's going a bit far, isn't it? And, incidentally, if you say yo one more time, Dean, I will personally have you thrown out of the university, pursued to the rim of the world by the finest demons that thaumaturgy can conjure up, torn into extremely small pieces, minced, turned into a mixture reminiscent of steak tartare, and turned out into a dog bowl. Y the Dean caught Ridcully's eye. Yes. Oh, go on, Arch-Chancellor. What's the good of having mastery over cosmic balance and knowing the secrets of fate if you can't blow something up? Please. I've got them all ready. You know how it upsets the inventory if you don't use them after you've got them ready? The trolley whirred up a trembling slope and cornered on two wheels. Oh, all right, said Ridcully, if it means that much to you. Yeah, oh, sorry. The dean started to mutter urgently under his breath and then screamed. I've gone blind! Your bonsai bandage has slipped over your eyes, Dean. Windle groaned. How are you feeling, Brother Poons? Red Shoe's ravaged features occluded Windle's view. Oh, you know, said Windle, could be better, could be worse. The trolley ricocheted off a wall and jerked away in another direction. How are those spells coming along, Dean? said Ridcully through gritted teeth. I'm having real difficulties controlling this thing. The dean muttered a few more words and then waved his hands dramatically. Octarine flame spurted from his fingertips and earthed itself somewhere in the mists. Yee-haw! he crowed. Dean? Yes, Arch-Chancellor? The comment I made recently about the Y-word... Yes, yes. You can definitely include yee-haw, too. The dean hung his head. Oh, yes, Arch-Chancellor. And why hasn't everything gone boom? I put a slight delay on it, Arch-Chancellor. I thought perhaps we ought to get out before things happened. Good thinking, that man. Soon have you out, Wendell, said Red Shoe. We don't leave our people in there. Isn't this... And then the floor erupted ahead of them, and then behind them. The thing that arose from the shattered tiles was either formless or many forms at once. It writhed angrily, snapping its tubing at them. The trolley skewed to a halt. Got any more magic, Dean? Uh, no, Arch-Chancellor. And the spells you just said will go off... Any second now, Arch-Chancellor. So, uh, whatever's going to happen is going to happen to us. Yes, Arch-Chancellor. Ridcully patted Windle on the head. Sorry about this, he said. Windle turned awkwardly to look down the passageway. There was something behind the Queen. It looked like a perfectly ordinary bedroom door, advancing in a series of small steps, as though someone was carefully pushing it along in front of them. What is it? said Reg. Windle raised himself as far as he could. Schleppel! 
Oh, come on, said Reg. It's Schleppel, shouted Windle. Schleppel, it's us. Can you help us out? The door paused, then it was flung aside. Schleppel unfolded himself to his full height. Hello, Mr. Poons. Hello, Reg, he said. They stared at the hairy shape that nearly filled the passageway. Uh, Schleppel, uh, could you clear the way for us? Windle quavered. No problem, Mr. Poons. Anything for a friend. A hand the size of a wheelbarrow glided through the steam and tore into the blockage, ripping it out with incredible ease. Hey, look at me, said Schleppel. You're right. A bogeyman needs a door like a fish needs a bicycle. Say it now and say it loud. I'm... And now could you get out of the way, please? Sure, sure. Wow. Schleppel took another swipe at the Queen. The trolley shot forward. And you'd better come with us, Windle shouted as Schleppel disappeared in the mists. No, he shouldn't, said the Arch-Chancellor as they sped along. Uh, believe me, uh, what was it? He's a bogeyman, said Windle. I thought you only get them in, in, in closets and things, shouted Ridcully. He's come out of the closet, said Red Shoe proudly, and he's found himself. Just so long as um, we can lose him. We can't just leave him. We can, we can, snapped Ridcully. There was a sound behind them like an eruption of swamp gas. Green light streamed past. The spells are starting to go off, shouted the dean. Move it! The trolley whirred out of the entrance and soared up into the cool of the night, wheels screaming. Yo! bellowed Ridcully as the crowd scattered ahead of them. Does that mean I can say yo too? said the dean. All right, just once. Everyone can say it just once. Yo! Yo! echoed Red Shoe. Ook! Yo! said Windlepoons. Yo! said Schleppel. End of CD 7